Let's pull up that first slide. Um, uh, Melissa and I are going to sound like super like conservative parents, but we only allow our, our three little ones to watch TV uh, once a week. And so they only get to watch after school on Fridays, which I know you're thinking like, oh, of course, pastor's just like that. All right. And, but the, the deal is each of them gets to choose one show uh, that they want to pick and, and all three of them watch together after school. And so after uh, my, my older son, Indigo, after his turn, after my daughter, Violet, her turn, that's when the real war negotiations actually start. As they try to convince the little guy, Crimson, like that they sh- why he should pick their show. And so this past week, I was watching them negotiate. I will be your best friend. I will let you play with my fidget spinner. Uh, I'll let you cuddle my stuffy, and because he does love to cuddle stuff. But the winner uh, was actually Violet, because she offered him, I will give you one of my chocolate cookies, my special chocolate Oreo cookies. And so, so he was like, yes. And so he, he bought into that. Um, they got to watch another one of her shows. And then when the time came to seal the deal, opened the jar. Oh, so sorry, but it looks like I'm all out. <laughs> and the look of betrayal on this three-year-old's face was heartbreaking for me. I had to spend 20 minutes consoling him because it was accompanied by much wailing and gnashing of teeth. And I wonder if you've ever felt stuck in a decision and you receive conflicting advice from people and you're not sure which one to trust because they both sound pretty good. Or maybe you're the type of person like, I don't get influenced by other people. I don't listen to anybody. I just make my own decisions. I'm my own man. But yet you don't realize how much the voices in your head from your family of origin, from your friends, from, your te- from a teacher, from a mentor, from your pastors, from media, from social media, actually shape our thinking. And so we oftentimes have conflicts that arise in our minds, conflicting opinions, and we struggle with wisdom and decision about our career, about our education, about our fi- finances, our family, or our future. And so today what we want to give you, what the Word of God wants to give you, is perhaps a blueprint of how to seek and find wisdom from God. And so if you have a Bible, you want to turn in it to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. There's a Bible underneath your seat if you don't have one. Otherwise, we're going to put the the passage up on the big screen. But we're in this series called Clear, where we're learning in a confusing and conflicting world how to see life through the countercultural lens of the gospel, the good news about Jesus. And you may remember that The city of Corinth is this seaside city where many cultures and many religions intermingle and the values of their culture through Greco-Roman influence has been personal success, personal pleasure. And that because there's kind of a sprinkling of all these different kinds of religions, just to worship whatever fits your need in that moment. You need fertility, you want a baby, worship this fertility God from this culture. You need uh, some rain for for crops, then you, you pray to this God. And the problem was that Some of these same values had begun to blur the eyes of followers of Jesus, the Christians there in the city of Corinth. So the Apostle Paul, he writes this letter to this church that he helped to plant to help them see their lives, their world more clearly. And so you may remember that we learned from the beginning of this letter that you and I were called to live our life through the lens of our identity in Christ That because you and I have experienced the love and forgiveness and acceptance and grace through Jesus, that we're able to grow in our lives in holiness and unity together, distinct from the world, so that there's something when we know who we are in Christ that changes how we live. 
But if identity defines who you are, then wisdom is what determines where you go. And so we learned last time how we respond to the good news that the sinless Son of God died on a cross for the sinfulness of mankind. And that that's the starting point for God's wisdom, guiding us in life-giving directions instead of the world's wisdom, which leads to destruction. And so today we're going to explore a little bit more deeply and a little bit more practically, starting chapter 2, verse 1. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. So in chapter 1, you may remember that the Corinthian Christians, they were fighting, had this infighting going on over who's their favorite preacher. Like, who's more engaging? Who's more interesting? Who uses the best sermon illustration? And basically, they were using worldly wisdom to guide their spiritual choices. And so instead of fighting back, instead of boasting in his own preaching, what Paul does is he boasts in Christ in verse 1 and 2. That he says, I didn't try to win you over with mesmerizing stories or a clever turn of phrase. Instead, I was intentional and simple in preaching Jesus and him crucified. Now, what that doesn't mean is like, that Paul's like anti-intellectual or, or anti-wisdom. Um, it doesn't mean that he doesn't use reason or relevance when he's telling people about Jesus. Because we'll see later on in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 22, that he says, I have become all things to all men that by all possible means I might save some. So he's all about being relevant and meeting people where they are, and even in his preaching, being able to relate to where people are coming from. But what he is saying is that I'm not relying on human methods to change people's lives. I'm relying on the life-transforming truth about who Jesus is and what he has done at the cross. And so in verses 3 to 5, Paul says that, you know, if you were to judge me by worldly standards of oratory skills, I'd appear pretty weak in my preaching to the Corinthians. In the same way that the message about Jesus and his followers appear weak to the world we saw in chapter 1. But what that means is that you're not relying on what I can do, that instead you're not seeing me through uh, your, your life and your faith being changed because of what I've done. It's not through intellectual persuasion. It's not through emotional manipulation, but as a demonstration of God's spirit and power. Now, what does that mean when we see uh, both the power and the work of God's spirit in a powerful way? Like, for many of us, we might have a picture of being wowed by miraculous healing and, oh, we saw, I see that, that happen in my life or someone else's life, then my life is changed by that. Or mysteriously, $100 pops in the mail just when it happened that I needed it. I was in a financial crunch. Yes, the Holy Spirit can work that way, but that's not what Paul's talking about here. You see, the Holy Spirit, for those of you who are less familiar, is the third person of the Trinity. One God expressed in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so he's equally God. He's a he, not an it. He's a person. He's not the force. Because sometimes people think that he's just like this, this uh, uh, energy that, or power that comes from God. He is a thinking, 
uh, intelligent being who works in conjunction with the Son and the Father. And so as we follow and connect with Jesus, He fills us with His Holy Spirit to give us assurance about our salvation, to grow us in holiness and maturity, to gift us for ministry. And so Paul is talking about here the Holy Spirit and wisdom, the way that Jesus describes in the Gospel of John, chapter 14, verse 17, as the Spirit of truth, the source of wisdom. And in John chapter 16, verses 8 through 15, the one who comes to convict the world about sin and righteousness and judgment by guiding us into all truths from Jesus and His Word. And so the picture there that Paul's talking about is when we're stuck in our foolishness, in our weakness, in our sinfulness, and we need wisdom, Jesus comes where we are. He comes to us where we are in our sin. He loves us and forgives us and accepts us as we are but he also loves us too much to leave us there. And so he sends his Holy Spirit who has power to transform our hearts and our lives to increasingly become more like Jesus in how we live and how we think and how we love. And so the big idea of the passage this morning is that we rely on the power of God's Spirit instead of the wisdom of men to change lives. That is not through polished preaching. It's not through seeing miraculous signs. It's not through self-help books, but through a demonstration of the power of God's Spirit at work in us as He convicts us, comforts us, counsels us, and changes the course of our lives towards Jesus. So let's talk about wisdom for a minute. How do you know if you're living in the wisdom and power of God's Spirit? Is there evidence that the Holy Spirit is moving and guiding and changing your life in Jesus' direction? Are you starting to love sin less and love Jesus more? Are you starting to increasingly reflect Jesus and His Word more in your decisions and your actions, in your relations with people? That's what the wisdom and power of the Holy Spirit looks like when He's at work. So let's get a little bit more specific. How do we identify that? Let's start looking from verse 6. Yet amongst the mature, we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away, but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love Him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. So when we talk about not following worldly wisdom, it doesn't mean being foolish right? So maybe like we think about, okay, worldly wisdom says that, that, that you should love money and love stuff. So instead, I'm just going to give everything that I have and spend all that I have and not be responsible and not feed my family because you can't take it with you. No, that's foolish. Being, not following the world's wisdom doesn't mean being foolish. Following Jesus means that I can still be wise in the world, but not worship the things of the world. So what we're talking about here is wisdom flows from what you value. Do I value wealth and treasures of this life? Do I worship that? But rather than being wise with it, 
through Jesus Christ. And so in verse 6, Paul says, it's not that I'm anti-wisdom. We do give you wisdom, but it's not the kind that's based on the wisdom and people of, did you see this? They repeated over and over, this present age, which is all doomed to pass away. And so the problem with worldly wisdom is that what it seeks, what it values, this is what we're talking about in this section, what it values is limited. Paul describes it as temporary people seeking after temporary goals that all pass away. And instead, he wants you to consider what is the wisdom that God gives? What's the value in that? Verse 7, once it was hidden from human eyes, now it's revealed in Jesus. It's now made understandable through his Holy Spirit. It was planned before the beginning of history. And now I want you to know what is the goal? What does God value? What does it say here? For our glory, to save people by faith in Christ, his death, his resurrection, for our glory. The goal is, the value is to experience the life, the goodness, the glory of Jesus forever. That's what he wants you to invest in. And so in verse 8, he says, there's no person that's powerful enough or influential enough to understand this truth about Jesus and his glory for us. Otherwise, they wouldn't have crucified him, right? It doesn't make any sense if they knew, if they could understand that wisdom. It'd be like if you were dying, you called an ambulance, you called 911, and then you decided to murder the EMT when he got there. That doesn't make any sense because they don't understand the value of what God is offering. And so what the wisdom of God offers in verse 9 and 10 is that no one has yet seen it. No one has yet heard it. You can't even imagine how amazing the joy, the purpose, the fulfillment that God has prepared for those of us who want to love and worship and follow Jesus. Nobody can understand it or imagine it, but we can. And the reason why is because the Holy Spirit reveals it to us. So when you're able to start seeing these things, when, you, when it moves your heart, when it doesn't seem like foolish to, to you, you, you're, you know that the Holy Spirit is working in you so that our wisdom and our motivation for our decisions and our actions in this life starts to look ahead to those things of eternal value, valuing Jesus and our future with him. So your decisions are about what do you value? Is it just here or there? And so think of it this way. The wisdom that you and I choose to follow, it depends on what you really value in life. And the Holy Spirit, here's the point of this part, the Holy Spirit gives godly wisdom that values the joy and fulfillment of eternal glory over temporary gain of this life. I want you to think about this way. Jesus talks about in Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 21, don't store up for yourselves treasure and, treasures on earth where moth and rust can destroy them, where thieves can break in and steal it. Instead, store up treasures for yourself in heaven, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And now, he's talking about the, uh, like valuing and treasuring wealth and stuff, but this actually applies across the board to all situations and decisions of life. In your dating, in your careers, in your conflicts, in your health uh, issues, in your home, you're going to face the inescapable influence of the world's values. The world will say, this is how you make, should make decisions. Will it make your life better now, in the here and now? Will it make you happy in the here and now? Temporary satisfaction. Now, there's nothing wrong with improving or enjoying your life here. But don't neglect the life to come. Because it lasts a lot longer and the joys are much greater in the kingdom of God. So if you want to diagnose 
Where is your heart? When Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart is also. If you want to diagnose where your heart is, where your wisdom is, what are you valuing today? What is your goal? And by pursuing that path, does it have a lasting impact in the kingdom of God, or is it something that's just going to pass away? Another way to look at it is, am I making choices that honors Jesus, obeys Jesus, reflects Jesus? Am I storing up treasures on earth or in heaven? For those of you who are science nerds, you know that uh, there's two types of magnification that you can use uh, as far as tools, microscopes and telescopes. And one of them makes small things look much bigger than they are. And the other one makes something big look as big as it really is, so you can see it clearly. And so what worldly wisdom does is it magnifies short-term problems, pleasures, and priorities, making small things, small rewards to be much larger, much more important in our eyes than they really are. The world's wisdom is a microscope. But when King David worships God in Psalm 69, he says, May your salvation, O God, set me securely on high, I will magnify God with thanksgiving. What he doesn't mean is that I will make a small God and his small salvation look bigger than it is. What he does mean is I will make a big God and his big future and fulfillment for me, his salvation for me, begin to look as big as it really is. And so I want to ask you this morning, in your wisdom, the things that you're seeking for, that you value, that's guiding your decisions, Is it a microscope or a telescope? Do you look at the temporary pleasures and treasures of this life and make them big and your goal, your end goal? Or do you look at Jesus and the glory that he has for you and make them distant and small? So our first filter to wisdom this morning is discerning what do you value? Do you trust Jesus and the work of the Holy Spirit leads to eternal satisfaction and glory that is far greater than all the treasures and pleasures of this life? So if you want to be wise, you need the right goals for this life and the life to come, but you also need the right lens by which we see things, the way we evaluate situations and decisions, which is where we'll pick up in verse 11. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. Now listen to the contrast. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, they're foolishness to him, and he's not able to understand them because they're spiritually discerned. The spiritual person, in contrast, judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. And uh, just as a side note, uh, that verse 15, when it says the spiritual person judges, I want you to, it's, the, the implication that you're reading is probably not what, it mean, what 
you think it means. <coughs> Excuse me, the original word means to discern. <clears throat> so I want you to read that as the spiritual person discerns all things, but himself to be discerned or understood by no one. That's the proper translation of that, that verse. And that comes into play in just a moment. But I want you to look at this verse, uh, this passage, and think about how in verses 11 and 12, it's kind of like, just like how other people can't read your mind, no one outside of God can discern his mind. It has to be revealed to us by the Holy Spirit and so that we can grasp the truths and the grace of God that's been given us in Christ. And so he's painting, again, a picture of those values, those end goals ahead, those things that God has freely given us, like our eternal salvation, our freedom, our family in Christ, our fulfillment in Christ, our future in Christ, and that the Holy Spirit is growing us in holiness and unity as a testimony to the world, that these are all things God freely gives us. And in verse 13, he says that this wisdom is given to the spiritual person, right? And what he doesn't mean there is not some super holy religious elite Christian. What that word means there, when he says the spiritual person, it's as in somebody who is spiritually alive in Christ, somebody who has received the Holy Spirit. And what that means is every person who has genuinely put their love and trust and worship into Jesus and followed him, that you are the spiritual person. And that this wisdom doesn't come from limited human knowledge and understanding and observation and reason, but by the Holy Spirit alone. That's why I don't stand up here simply teaching you things about human psychology or philosophy. I don't stand here giving you parenting tips and dieting tips, although those are helpful and can be useful. But by asking and receiving from the Holy Spirit understanding, interpretation, and application of spiritual truths from God's Word so that we might grow in faith and wisdom, and power, and joy, and life in Christ. And so in verse 14, he talks about there's two different sets of eyes that look at our situations and our decisions. The first set is the natural person who only sees things from the perspective of the natural world. It's limited by what I can see, what I can touch. It's limited by what I think and what I feel and experience in the world and so I'm unable to discern or accept spiritual truth and wisdom from a supernatural God. I see it as foolishness. You are telling me to give God control of my life? Well, that's a, just a crutch. I'm my own man or woman. You guys value purity or sobriety? Pfft, that's lame. I have a lot of stress in my life, and I need a little release now and then. Why should I be sacrificial and forgiving for my, somebody who's been an enemy to me, like Jesus does. People are just going to walk all over you like they did to Jesus. You see, through natural eyes, these things look foolish. But in verses 15 through 16, Paul says that this person who, is, who has spiritual eyes, who is, who is spiritually alive in Christ, is able to see and discern all that's spiritually true and valuable, and yet won't be discerned, won't be understood by the people who don't have Jesus' thoughts because they don't have Jesus, obviously. But we can. We can have the mind of Christ by the Holy Spirit to see the world through his eyes and his priorities. And so there's two filters for wisdom, two ways of looking at the world. And godly wisdom sees life through the eyes of spiritual truth instead of natural. Godly, godly wisdom looks at a situation through the lens of Jesus' thoughts and truths and promises. How would 
God see this situation? How does His Word guide us to a solution? How would Jesus treat that person? It reminds me of several years ago, there was a young woman who came to me, not from our church, but she came to me for some counseling and said, so pastor, I'm a Christian and I worship Jesus and I know I'm not supposed to live with this non-Christian man, but you know, and you could hear it. She bought into the world's wisdom of seeing things only through her natural eyes. But you know, I think it's okay because we were living together for financial reasons and it's only a little bit of sexual impurity and, and we're married in, in, our, in our hearts. Worldly wisdom, natural eyes. And it's just this one thing that's not quite right in, in, in my life. So she asked me, so is, you know, I don't know what, what the big deal about that is. And I, said, and I told her very honestly, because you've made your boyfriend God. No, I don't. Jesus is God. No, your boyfriend is. You had to choose between your boyfriend and Jesus and you chose your boyfriend. You had to choose between being close to your boyfriend or Jesus, and you chose the boy. You had a choice between inviting your boyfriend or Jesus into your home, and you decided to worship the boy. You present your body as a living sacrifice to the glory and obedience of your boyfriend at the expense of Jesus. So I asked her, what do you really want? What is it that you really value? What is the eyes that you want to look at this thing as? Well, ultimately, I would love for my boyfriend to become a Christian. I told her, well, you can't worship your boyfriend and then convince him that the most important thing in your life is to worship Jesus. You can't say to him that Jesus is your greatest treasure, but when it came down to you or Jesus, I chose you to chose, chose to bow down to you. And so one of you needs to move out as an act of worship because he will never understand the significance of Jesus if you are willing to disobey Jesus and put him in Jesus' place on the throne of your heart. But I was explaining to her, it's not about having a sexual immorality problem or uh, a sexual impurity or problem or a morality problem. It's a wisdom problem. It's a worship problem. You see, spiritual eyes would help her to see that Jesus is by far a much greater God that this guy is a taker, but Jesus is a giver. This guy is using you, but Jesus serves you. This man is defiling you, but Jesus makes you clean. Jesus is drawing you closer to his father, and this man is pulling you away from him. You see, if you start to see everything in your life through the spiritual eyes of Jesus, you'll approach things much differently. Instead of, I need to eat less or drink less or spend less or I need to work more or save more or give more. I need to date someone else. Instead, you'll say, I need to worship Jesus. I need to live for Jesus. That is wisdom. So when you're trying to make wise decisions, I want to ask you, do you see your situation through the filter of just your natural eyes or your spiritual eyes? Is it just a financial issue? No. You know, many of you who've gone through premarital counseling with me know that I talk about that you're not just making financial decisions. Every financial decision is a spiritual decision. Is it just a dating issue? No. It's a wisdom issue. It's a spiritual issue. So do you perceive your problems and your priorities and your plans through limited earthly senses? Or are you making those decisions through the spiritual values and vision of Jesus and His Word? Last night, uh, I attended my high school reunion. I don't want to tell you what year, because it's been multiple decades. Um, but I had an amazing time catching up with people that I hadn't seen in 
I almost said the number, many years. And we talked about what if, I mean, even the people that were kind of mean in high school, like I'm so fascinated because I want to hear their stories of what they've been through, how they've changed, because most of them had to grow up, right, at some point. And people, of course, reciprocate, ask questions back, and like, yeah, like, what are you still into, Josh? And I was like, well, you know, I'm a, I read comics, comic books, and I collect action figures. Oh, with your kids? No. <laughs> See, you haven't changed that much, Josh. But for me, when I was talking to other people, the big question I like to ask to kind of discover that kind of information is, did your life turn out the way that you hoped? And I'll tell you something, that question, especially when people find out like, oh, you became a pastor, and all of a sudden like the cussing stops around me, the drinking stops around me, and the floodgates open wide, and I heard stories last night of brokenness, of loneliness, of mistakes that were made, of wreckage in people's life. How did you get there? Well, I thought I was doing something that was going the right way. I thought I was getting the right thing, but I took a wrong turn. I got swept down this path that I never expected or intended. And I think about that because, you know, these are people who are in their 40s and 50s. And their life has kind of reached a certain trajectory at this point. And I think about likewise for you, Every day, you and I are making decisions. And these decisions require us to apply some kind of wisdom, whether it's from the world or whether it's from God. And as we apply those, it's pointing us in a direction. And it starts to follow a trajectory, and then it becomes a pattern, a path that your life has suddenly gone down. And you don't realize until you look back that wisdom has been guiding you in one direction or another. And whether you're experiencing adversity or prosperity, every single one of us faces uncertainty about that path, the direction it will take, whether or not that path ahead is wise. And so my prayer for you is may you be clear about what wisdom looks like. So many people who follow Jesus still live foolishly. I know I do at times too. And so my prayer for you is may you discern Wisdom by the power of God, by recognizing the evidence of a life that is genuinely changed by the Holy Spirit for Jesus. May you determine wisdom by what you value, that the gains of this life cannot compare to the glory to come. And may you magnify wisdom by the lens that is not limited to what you can just see and touch and experience and expect with your natural eyes. May you see through spiritual eyes of Jesus, his truths, his promises, his word, and discover that Jesus is the all-satisfying end to every longing that you might have in life. May wisdom lead you to know him and enjoy him forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, when I look at your word, It is extremely practical, but it's easy for it to just stick in the theoretical. God, help us this morning to know that there is a different way to live, that there is a different path we can take. Some of us come here this morning and we've we've got a lot of baggage. We've taken a lot of wrong turns. 
we feel stuck in a quagmire of mistakes and poor choices. God, give us spiritual eyes to see a different life, a different potential, different things that we can seek. Some of us, we don't necessarily have hard things going on in our lives, but we've grown complacent because the road has seemed smooth. We haven't noticed that we've been traveling perhaps in the wrong direction, following the wisdom and values of the world rather than the life of Jesus. But we believe your promise and your word that your Holy Spirit has power to change lives and destinies for eternity. And so, Lord, we don't ask to simply fix things by making the next right choice, but instead we ask that Jesus would be more present in our lives, that he would fill us more with his Holy Spirit, that we would learn and and be empowered to receive and understand and live out his wisdom that we might enjoy Jesus in a life that's filled with his direction, his path, his patterns in our lives. May that be our testimony to the world.